Frontier with stories of publishing past, conversations with publishing professionals of today, and peeks into publishing's future. Today's guests are Dr. Rachel Norda and Dr. Kathy Inman Barons. Dr. Rachel Norda is Director of Publishing and Assistant Professor of English at Portland State University. Dr. Norda holds a PhD degree in publishing studies from the University of Sterling and has published peer-reviewed research on various book publishing projects, including book subscription boxes, independent publisher mission statements, the Portland Book Festival, and online book blurbs. She is currently writing a book contracted with Cambridge University Press about entrepreneurship in 21st century U.S. book publishing. She's been very involved with the industry, including analyzing data and writing industry reports for PubWest, the Independent Book Publishers Association, the Book Industry Study Group, Literary Arts, and Publishing Scotland. Dr. Kathy Inman Behrens, Associate Professor of English at Portland State University, has published peer-reviewed research about digital humanities, book publishing, and electronic literature. A PhD from UC Berkeley, Dr. Behrens conducted grant-supported research for IBM when she was faculty and a fellow of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California. Dr. Behrens studies immersive environments in transmedia experiences, consulting with Portland companies on VR medical therapies, immersive storytelling, and mobile web interface design. In her book publishing consulting and scholarship, two years of survey work provide foundational data for insights about consumer behavior at the Portland Book Festival. She's on the advisory council for the Portland Book Festival. Welcome, doctors. Hello, hello. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. Great to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out um, about your research. I'm very excited for, uh, to hear about all of the hard work that you've done um, and the fact that you have been able to accomplish something so uh, encompassing uh, during a period of time where it's really hard to be, be productive in life. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as an icebreaker, how have you been staying motivated? Ooh, I have a, I have a dog um, that walks very, very slowly. And I've had to practice mindfulness in order to be his companion as we <laughs> amble through the different types of weather we've had. So I would say my super slow dog has been a technique. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Rachel? For context, uh, Kathy's dog is a corgi. So very short legged um, which <laughs> impacts the slow walking. Yeah. For me, um, I mean, to stay motivated in terms of this research, um, working with a collaborator like Kathy is really mm -hmm. exciting because we get to, you know, build off each other and um, have really interesting conversations. But kind of just in general during COVID, my coping mechanism has been baking. <sighs> Ooh, which um, um which the barons family sing folk songs about rachel's baked goods um, <laughs> they are so superb um my husband calls her the mozart of baked goods um so i would say covid's been very very good to all of us actually in this regard <laughs> well in the baked goods department i think that's been one one area that we've all kind of explored 
Um, I have also benefited <laughs> from the baked goods because uh, my husband is very interested in baking and um, experimenting. There were three weeks in a row where we had coffee cake every Saturday because mm. he couldn't get the recipe right. I'm like, mm, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it needs a little more this. And he's like, well, okay, I'll, I'll try that next week. And I'm like, no, stop. I hate Never. it. Just kidding. It was all my idea. Clever human. Yes. <laughs> unabashedly you should um start a uh, trend on tiktok where you do folk songs about baked goods be like <laughs> sea shanty to baked good folk songs i bet it would work yeah i think with ukulele yeah oh my god i love it <laughs> yeah all right um so give me just like the short rundown of what this uh what this report is about that you two have done together well, as uh, listeners may be aware, there's not a lot of publicly available data about readership in the industry. A lot of it is behind paywalls, um, the data that is available. And just um, we wanted to uh, be able to produce something that could be publicly accessible and kind of be a foundational piece for you know everyone to be talking about the same thing um, because so many times even in looking at like some of the disputes between publishers and libraries or you know some of these different stakeholders it's because they're not actually using the same data to talk to each other they all have their own kind of proprietary data and then make assumptions about what that means for everybody else um, so that was a big part of it for us. And then, you know, COVID has really changed book, book uh, reading and book buying, book borrowing. Um, so to be able to document that during this particularly pivotal year was also important. Yeah. And, and um, following up with what Rachel was saying about this year as an unusual year, we did gather data about people's behavior before COVID and then people's behavior during COVID. So that's a very interesting snapshot to have that will become more valuable over time um, if we're funded to go back into the field and gather more data using um, identical questions and then maybe a couple new ones. Um, one of the key concepts is book engagement as opposed to say book reading or book buying. Um, because people do lots and lots of things with books, including give them as gifts to others. Um, they use them um, because sometimes they have already read it online, but maybe they want that beautiful cover on their shelf. Um, they also dip in and out of books uh, as reference materials. And I mean, we wouldn't say, I mean, I wouldn't say that I've read a book if I've only looked at a paragraph in it. And yet that maybe that was a very important paragraph. So we really wanted to capture the wide range of things that people do with books. So we book engagement was the primary term that we used. It's also a cross media um, study and that was very important to us too. So books are a main focus, but we also look at um, TV, film and games, which are you know adjacent industries that really have more connection than not, um, which is, you know, is what we found the, the kinds of people that were avidly engaging with books were also avidly engaging in these other forms. So not thinking of them as, as such siloed spaces, but rather this interconnected ecosystem of media consumption. 
And you had uh, 4,300 respondents that were pre-qualified. That seems like a ridiculous number of people. I haven't done surveys (laughs) like that before, but I looked at that and I'm like, you pre-qualified everybody. And then you asked them all these questions and like, how did you qualify them? Good question. Yeah, so we had particular quotas that we were filling. So as um, people were signing up to take the survey online, and this was through um, a research en- entity, Qualtrics, with which PSU already has a relationship with. Um, and so they were the ones who were bringing in the, um, the people for the survey, but um, basically we had four quotas that we were thinking about, age, region, um, gender, and also race, ethnicity. And so those um, were capped at certain points um, for certain demographics uh, to be able to match the US population. That was the idea is so that, you know, one group isn't particularly overrepresented just because um, they ended up uh, taking the survey first. Oh, okay, so just the uh, proportional to the US census data. Correct. And I learned something really interesting about US census data, which is that older people like boomers uh, are, there are more white boomers uh, than there are white millennials proportionally. Mm -hmm. Um, That in other words, you know, as we've talked about 2042, I think is the year when white people will no longer be the racial majority in the United States. And you can see that um, in the generational differences that our survey captured. So it's really, really interesting to think about because uh, white female baby boomers have been really thought to be the best customer um, of the book publishing industry, but our data found that that is not the case. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, Rachel, do you want to jump in on that? Because Rachel, (laughs) yeah, of course. And and I mean, I want to say that Rachel is a phenomenal researcher. She is um, the very unusual humanist who also has significant social sciences training and can crunch numbers like nobody's business. So. (laughs) A unicorn, I love it. Yes. Yeah, millennials and particularly Black and Latinx um, millennials, so um, a more ethnically diverse group, um, they, more of them were avid book engagers. So we, we looked at a segment which was 53% of our survey population, and these were the um, respondents who engaged with the most books. It was um, four plus books per month, 48 books a year. Um, to give kind of some context, there have been other Pew studies that um, have found that uh, the average number of books that uh, Americans read is 12. So, you know, these are really um, quite avid uh, book engagers. They're buying as gifts, but they're also reading and um, borrowing from the library. And uh, it's really encouraging. And to be honest, not really surprising to me that, that it's so um, young and ethnically diverse, but now we have data to prove that, you know, yes. we've been trying to say that there's been so long where publishers are, are not publishing books for those markets because they say they're not reading or there isn't a market there, but there is. Yes. <laughs> so it's good news. 
shake, yeah. you can just point at things, you can tap the sign, you can throw well, paper mean- in the air. <laughs> That's what I yeah. do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the other reason to toss confetti is that we have a very high level of confidence in these data. We have a 98.5% confidence rate, um, which is a statistical derivation that Rachel could probably explain <laughs> better than I. Um, but, but I mean, with that is to say, like, like, where does this data come from? Like, who's funding us? Like, is, that, is this data interested in any way? And the answer is, it is not. Um, this uh, study was funded and the money went mostly to pay because you have to pay survey respondents and that's what Qualtrics does. It's part of their, that's what incentivizes people to take the surveys. Um, and the people who funded us are Overdrive. Those are the folks who do the eBooks um, at libraries. Um, the ALA, the American Library Association, the Book Industry Study Group, the Independent Book Publishers of America. So we're talking about a very, um, you know, broad group of industry people um, and nobody had any particular ax to grind. So that's why the the good news about um, Black and Latinx millennials being such avid book engagers um, is a really happy story that just reflects practices. And it's going to a lot of uh, a lot of organizations that actually have some level of influence. So it's not like it's going to uh, hide in a in a tome somewhere that no one will read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Was that offensive? Oh, I'm sorry. Was I slightly too honest? Was that rude? <laughs> We're aware. Oh, Look, yeah. I'm sympathizing. Well, but that gets back to Rachel's observation about paywalls. I mean, like this is high, this is like grade A data that anybody in the world can access. It is freely accessible. Um, and, you know, we invite um, everybody in book publishing and across media to check out the study. Um, Cause we also found that avid book engagers were also avid video gamers and avid TV, TV and movie streamers. Um, so, what, what I kind of am curious about um, is where do these folks find the time? Because they're consuming avidly in all of these media. Um, you know, we had this fabulous um, person at Portland State who emailed, <clears throat> emailed us with data about how students replay, like say recorded classes or other media available through Portland State. And Emily Connolly noted uh, that they play back at one and a half times speed, right? And many people, I think, play back audiobooks at faster than than a one x um, rate. I, I see you nodding. Got I see to. people nodding actually. <laughs> um, and so, but I mean, I'm curious about, like, I mean, sure, some of the because like there's a lot of casual gaming that people do on their mobile phones. So you can do that when you're in line someplace or just killing time between things. But um, for the immersive uh, media experiences, it's kind of hard to do that while you're also doing other things. And yet we find that people really are doing that. Can you put a finer point on what you mean when you say immersive? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think typically um, when we think about when the book industry thinks about immersive reading, they imagine somebody with a book, you know, underneath the apple tree, um, you know, deeply dived into that book. 
um, and unaware of anything else going on around them. But what our data are suggesting is that people are multitasking, first of all, they're multitasking when they're like 70% of them are multitasking when they engage audiobooks. Uh, 61%, is that right, are engaging, are multitasking when they engage ebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that people are doing multiple things at once. Um, there are some forms of games that are amenable to that. There are some forms of TV and video consumption that are amenable to that. Um, and so I think we want to broaden our notion or maybe create more nuance um, when we think about forms of attention, because for sure, immersive attention of the sort we bring when we read a novel or a memoir or um, autobiography or whatever, and you tune everything else out around you, that's a certain kind of attention. And people find that kind of attention really rewarding. It's why books have been around for 500 years um, and will continue to be around. Uh, But there are other forms that kind of go back to this idea of playing audiobooks at one and a half speed or more, which is to say hyper reading. And so I think it'd be kind of interesting to do a little more digging around um, rates at which people are consuming different types of media. Your, uh, your questions uh, that you included for people to respond to seem very nuanced, or at least what you were able to extrapolate from it. There, there's just like a very interesting number of learnings that you got from them. Can you kind of like give a rundown on all of the different like things you were looking for, I guess? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what we were looking for, there were two main goals for the project overall. Um, one was discovery. How are people discovering things? Um, so books, but also TV, movies, and games. And how does this discovery happen across those different media forms too, not just within? But then also because um, we were working with Panorama Project, Um, on this, they are particularly um, interested in data about libraries. And so the other goal was to figure out how do libraries fit within this system, um, this ecosystem. So those were the two things that that drove us. So, um, you know, there were many questions about uh, the different ways that Uh, like where people are discovering um, books and how they are discovering books. Um, Turns out uh, word of mouth, of course, is very important as we know, but reinforced here that, you know, some of the top ways um, for discovering books um, include recommendations from friends, recommendations from family, and also favorite author. and that genre is the most important piece in terms of book buying factors. Um, but then uh, uh, author, it comes in second. So, you know, author brand and category really are quite important. Um, and th- those both come uh, before price <laughs> in mm-hmm. people's decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's interesting in how people are browsing both online and you know, talking about browsing in person uh, in bookstores and attending in-person events too, um, in-person author events. So um, for that question, we were asking how they usually find books. So it wasn't just during COVID. And obviously there have been some particular um, uh, 
difficulties with browsing in person and going to um, author events in person during COVID, but um, it's interesting to see how people still really appreciate those uh, methods. Yeah. And we also uh, found, we were really surprised to find that people are not using bookstores. Um, bookstores are not just a, a showroom for Amazon. That actually it works the opposite direction as well at basically roughly equal rates. So people might discover a book on Amazon and then go grab it at their local bookstore. I do that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I mean, another really interesting discrepancy um, was that I think like recommendations from friends and family make up the majority um, of uh, ways that people hear about books. Um, but recommendations from algorithms was ranked very, very low, which suggests that folks are actually probably not aware um, of the extent to which algorithmic recommendation is maybe priming them. Maybe they've seen things a few times before their pal says, hey, have you heard about this book X? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think that um, people in general, I mean, especially because we are living in um, kind of dual realities and embodied reality and a virtual reality, I think people are just not as aware of how, um, how their time online tacitly informs. Um, it's an invisible, they, invisible hand of the market. <laughs> Adam Smith um, online, right. <laughs> Yeah. God, he never died. Well, you know, there's one thing I do want to add before we move on, which is that we did have an important screening question. So all of the people that ended up taking our survey had to have engaged with at least one book in the previous 12 months, um, which is roughly about 75% of the population, according to a Pew study. So people who have not touched a book or engaged with a book or given a book or checked out a book, none of, who've done none of those things, they were not eligible to take this survey. So I do want to mention that screening question. Okay. So these are the people who I, the, uh, the publishers and the libraries actually care about, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it wasn't about, it wasn't about drawing people in. It was about using the, uh, uh, population that was there already well but again uh, engagement was defined really broadly so it wasn't um you know in terms of the 75 percent that pew was talking about that was of people who had read a book um mm -hmm. so it, it's likely higher actually yeah. the percentage that we're looking at because um we defined engagement as borrowing, buying, reading, gifting a book in part or in whole. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it was a very, you know, broad and then just one of that sort of engagement within the last 12 months. So, um, yeah, we wanted there to be a book connection, but still um, that engagement piece was widely defined. Okay. So there's, there's fruitful data, whether or not someone is like reading a book. Um, yeah, yeah, they might not all be readers in terms of like how they identify themselves and, and how the industry might define them. Mm -hmm. yeah. So since it did have to do uh, with more than just the readers per se, and also included um, consumption of other forms of media, how would you say that these, um, these results might 
be received by people in other forms of media? Do you think that mm-hmm. they might be interested in it? Um, or do you think that this is going to be a purely book, uh, book industry specific uh, study? I think that media professionals of all kinds have reason to be interested in this study because their best customers across media um, are the other guy's best customers too. Um, And so what kinds of opportunities for collaboration, for cross-promotion, for development of of intellectual property together uh, might there be? you know, the, I mean, there are, there are people who know far, far more about licensing than I do. Uh, but I mean, if you think about something like um, the South Korean company, Naver, having, having purchased Wattpad, um, which is the mobile first story app out of Toronto, um, you know, that's a really interesting acquisition because Naver owns Webtoons. And that is to say that they also have both of these companies, both Naver and uh, Wattpad, have very young audiences. And I know a lot of book publishing professionals are thinking, well, um, how do we attract those people? And can we get them interested in our products too? And I think that that kind of bridge building has to happen deliberately. You know, that, that it, it can't, you can't just sort of wait for, um, I don't know, people who are in their teens to discover books but there are definitely ways that books get into the hands of teens. And of course, as we can see, like the way that YA is flourishing and all the new developing subgenre in YA, we know it's a super hot and interesting part of the, part of the industry. So I think that those conversations can are ready to happen. And we now have data to show why they should happen. Um, That's a lot of opportunities. Uh, Were there any, surprising additional surprising ones that you saw that you you looked at and said this is something that you know a library can benefit from or a publisher can benefit from but bookstores can benefit from anything jump off the page at you I mean understanding that group of avid book engagers especially you know uh more ethnically diverse and and younger um is is a big one but we also saw for for booksellers and for librarians for example um people are engaging with discovery through browsing say libraries and and bookstores but not necessarily recommendations from them like recommendations from booksellers and recommendations from librarians were quite low um and so there's an opportunity for both of those groups to think more strategically about, you know, how, how that might be a better discovery tool in the future, or why maybe um, it's not currently. Um, and looking to some of the other um, media to TV, film and, and games to see some of the strategies, particularly for um, engaging and um, minimizing risk uh, for um, customers who are, um, you know, investing time and money within the product. Um, So some of our recommendations, you know, include um, thinking more about subscriptions and about um, 
samples and, you know, marketing promotions to allow readers to test something out to see if they like it first, much like we've seen in, um, you know, like Kathy can talk more about that in the gaming industry, for example. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, especially if you, if you think about the role of streaming, um, books are the only entertainment product that we buy in analog form still. We don't buy DVDs, we don't buy CDs, we mostly stream our entertainment. We don't buy games for download. I mean, we, I mean, we download them from, from the web. So if you think about what people are used to, especially younger people, they're used to having these gigantic libraries to browse around in and you sample it and you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not into that. That's not my thing. But maybe the recommendation algorithm says, well, what about this? Like, what about that? And if that's the way that younger people are discovering things and they have a no risk sample experience, then the idea of shelling out 25 bucks for a book might seem that you may or may not like might seem kind of risky. So how, I mean, that, that I think is why um, genre is the number one um, way people find books. It's because it's like, well, that makes it less risky for me. I know I'm much more likely to enjoy this book because it's in the style of all these other books that I enjoy. I know I'm going to get a happy ending if I go for a rom-com, you know? So, I mean, I know that um, some people in the industry don't think that books are expensive, um, but I think if you think about a one point of sale versus the sampling of, um, of books, of, of, of subscription models, that's kind of a big difference in how people access their entertainment. I would also think uh, the perception of expensive, uh, especially if your biggest uh, consumer is the millennial generation who has a lot, like statistically a lot less money now, like that, that is an opportunity uh, to offer those samples um, and to de-risk things. Um, that, that's a really great point um, that well, I would love to learn more about. <laughs> yeah, this ties into another thing that we found, which was about piracy, um, that book pirates aren't just stealing, they're also buying books. So they're customers as well as also being thieves, um, you know, and so getting to know them as also a target market that's maybe not um, being quite understood or their needs being met, um, especially, you know, thinking about if they're going to check out a book from the library and it's not available in the format that they want, you know, then do they go pirate the book? Um, and so just changing that paradigm thinking a little bit, it was, it was interesting to see, you know, from the data um, that um, book piracy is, um, they are customers as, as well as, you know, obviously thieves. <laughs> this is purely anecdotal, but I think that there is a uh, interesting morality to people who pirate things because just, you know, I, I have, I am not historically a pirate. Um, you know, I did P2P with uh, uh, iTunes back in the early 2000s, <laughs> but that's not quite the same. Um, but there's been some some uh, some discourse around like how hate watching 
has ended up promoting pieces of media that people don't actually like necessarily, but mm. because because uh, like Emily in Paris getting a Golden Globe basically is what we're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. And everyone like, oh, I just watched that because everybody said it was terrible. <laughs> when you pirate something, that data doesn't emerge. Mm. And so a lot of the people that I, when I hear someone just cast off, like, oh, I'll just go like steal that off the internet. It's usually about someone who is a like super rich, um, huh. you know, Stephen King, George R. R. Martin, that kind of thing. Or they don't necessarily want to give that person the money or the credit. Hmm. Hmm. So that might be something to look into. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I, I do want to suggest that um, piracy is one reaction to not being able to find a book at the library, but we also have data that 41.5% go out and buy the book. If, if, if there's a long line at the library, they're like, I'm just going to go buy it. So on the one hand, we could say, gosh, we should just give libraries a whole bunch more copies, like fund libraries, though they already spend billions of dollars acquiring books, but um, give libraries more books and then piracy will go down. Well, to be honest, a little bit of frustration in not being able to get that book you're dying for sends people out to bookstores. Um, and that's just a thing to know too. I mean, it's complex um, to, that there aren't any easy answers. I mean, the industry has been struggling with piracy for, oh gosh, I don't know, 300 years. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so, I mean, it's a persistent problem. Um, but I think that one thing to, to look at might be trying to, if we get to go out again and do a version of this survey again, would be really to drill down on age demographics and attitudes toward piracy. Um, because I wonder if younger people might not even be quite as aware um, of when they're pirate. I mean, they're, I'm just getting my thing. I don't know exactly where it's coming from. Or are they all aware and they're just like, it is what it is. Um, so I'd be curious to whether people have a, um, an awareness even that they're pirate, pirating. Somebody go talk to pirates. Yeah, no, yeah. really. Get out there, sing your sea shanties. <laughs> Entice um, them with a little vitamin C. You never know what. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> um. So, you know, it almost seems to me like if I were, you know, if I were still in acquisitions, that this might be even more valuable. Like to have this yearly or, you know, every two years or something have this kind of information, um, maybe even more than BookScan because BookScan leaves out so much, or mm. I guess it's NPD now, right? Although NPD has started to feature re results from Amazon, um, ah. but I don't, right. So, I mean, cause it used to be before it had any Amazon results indeed, like that's a pretty, pretty large gap. But as is always the case with Amazon, we don't know is it everything from Amazon? Like, like what, like, I don't, I don't know enough about um, the pipeline of information from Amazon to NPD. Mm -hmm. Well, and especially with small publishers, I, I mean, we see this with, with Ooligan, the press, uh, you know, at, at Portland State, that um, 
there's a lot of selling that goes on at events and, you know, these sorts of things that aren't at all captured in BookScan. And so obviously, you know, each press has their own data to be able to use, but no other presses have access to that, you know, very specific and much more accurate data. And it makes a big difference for a small press because that, that can be a, quite a large difference in terms of numbers. Yeah, that would require a supply side study of um, mm -hmm. how those books are going out. There's so many, there's so many things that can be done. This is exciting. <laughs> so how have, uh, how has this played into the directions that you are taking in your uh, academic pursuits in your studies of publishing beyond this study in particular? Like what, what has it inspired for you? I've gotten really interested in the many different ways that authors can get paid. Um, I am interested because I mean, there's the book as a point of sale, but then there's also the labor that authors often put in on social media or other places that's unpaid labor in order to drive sale of books. Um, I do think that looking to adjacent industries um, might yield some good insights. Mm, well-known authors, or I mean, maybe basically like celebrity authors can sell tickets and bundle that with the sale of a book. I know that the headliners at the Portland Book Festival do that, for example. So you, you buy the book and then you're guaranteed of admission to the marquee event. Um, and that's true of other kind of celebrity authors. Um, but I know that smaller, like authors who are more mid-list, um, you know, they, um, they might be able to do releases of short form works direct to consumer if they have a sufficient relationship and they have a good website. Um, and that, that strikes me as sort of interesting to think about, well, people are using Patreon to have monthly subscriptions. The people are, are doing Kickstarters to kind of gauge interest in a book. Um, there are all kinds of uh, socially distributed and networked um, ways that authors can earn some money in between these, you know, the, during, during the like long period of, of writing a book. And that, that's, that's, so that's one thing I'm getting really interested in and I will be working on. What about you, Rachel? <laughs> yeah, there's so much that interests me from this particular study, but I'm always interested in how the U.S. compares to other um, national book cultures and um, consumer behaviors. So uh, one dream of mine is at some point to have, you know, a maybe version of this same study um, that we could have data about, say, readers in Germany, you know, to be able to have some consumer behavior that we could compare across national boundaries. Um, I think that would yield some really interesting things, especially, um, you know, if this could come after we've got some longitudinal data to see how much of the things that we're seeing from, from this survey is because of COVID or, you know, ch changing um, because of these circumstances or um, just behavior that, that now has changed permanently and, and is, is yeah. kind of going to be that way going forward. So, yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in, in the international connection um, but I think that would be really interesting to look into. Awesome, I love it. So where can people go to learn more about this report, maybe read it, um, hear you speak about it more, uh, let me know. 
Yeah, the Panorama website is um, Panorama Project um, is where you can go to um, download the report. And like we said, it's, you know, it's free. Um, there's also a webinar on March 10th and that's also free. You can sign up for that um, on, the, on the same page uh, on the Panorama site. So we hope that we see some of your listeners there. That would be wonderful. There has been there has been a bit of coverage in Publishers Weekly and Book Riot and Teleread. So so news about this is is coming out. And so people can probably also find it in some of those other um, venues. Um, and I'll, I'll note that we have the long form of the report, which has all that data that people want to dig into. But we also have the five page executive summary that just gives the top level headlines so folks can decide you can, you can download it all and then decide how deeply you want to go into things. We also even built in, um, sometimes we would repeat a little bit of information so that if someone was just skimming something relevant to their own, like booksellers were only skimming things relative to that, that they wouldn't miss a really big, important um, piece of information. So we do have, it's a, it's a user-friendly document. And I can link to that on uh, social media, the site, everything. Is that oh, okay? Yeah, Absolutely. Great. That'd be wonderful. Fantastic. Um, y'all reading anything fun lately? Well, um, I'm reading Cast, um, which I mean, I've, I've now seen Isabel Wilkerson twice, once at the Portland Book Festival and um, just a couple of days ago with the Lake Oswego Reads program. Uh, and Wilkerson's book is just I mean, even if you're like, oh yeah, I really get this idea at the conceptual level to read the amount of detail that she's marshalling is just jaw dropping. It's a genius book. I do recommend it. And it's also super readable and fun. And I have the pleasure of having just loaded her first book, The Warmth of Other Suns um, in my Audible. So I will be folding laundry to that for 20 hours. That's a lot of laundry. Um, I'm also reading Justin Hawking's memoir, um, The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World, um, which is about um, surfing. He became a surfer um, after he moved to New York City and he had never surfed before. He was a longtime skateboarder. Um, and it's about his obsession with um, Moby Dick. <laughs> I didn't know there was like a surfing scene. And that's, that's part of the, the real joy of reading this book is like oh, you, okay. do, you feel yourself like kind of pent up in Brooklyn and then you get to go surf. And I have to tell you, it feels pretty great. Gotcha. <laughs> talk about immersive yeah <laughs> right i'm gonna go in my corner and pray <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to, the, but actually spirituality is another feature of this book anyway I rachel how about you surfers. what do you mm-hmm. yeah oh that's yeah. right you, go to, you grew up in santa barbara didn't you yeah a lot of surfers for jesus there <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, church right. in the ocean I could see, I could feel that, you know, if I were strong enough to be a really good surfer, I, I mean, I've surfed once and it was um, pretty mind blowing. I did now somebody like literally pushed the board and I stood up. So it's not like it was fancy in any way, but it was pretty darn exciting. I have, to, I, I, I felt the woo that people yeah, might yeah. feel who are super good at this. I managed to be successful once, um, but the rest of the time it was mostly just sputtering and falling down and that kind of thing and but yeah it was I could see why people like to do it 
definitely was wanted some cinnamon rolls afterward though and it was like it was at pismo beach oh, and i walked the up next one. there is literally like a thing that says cinnamon rolls and it's big mural of cinnamon rolls and i hadn't seen it i was just like yeah <laughs> and then it was closed oh no oh, <laughs> the worst uh, rachel reading well as someone just to comment on on that real quick as someone who grew up in a desert I'm actually a little bit scared of the ocean I don't go in like more than I can touch (laughs) so (laughs) surfing's not really my jam I'm also a bit scared of sharks but I love that Oregon coast is so cold that no one's really going in anyway so I can just like (laughs) go pick up shells and do my thing and it's great so (laughs) You know what, Rich, you should go to, um, oh golly, is it Pacific City? It, there, there's this beautiful kite surfing. Um, oh, it's Manzanita. Ooh. It's very, very windy. And so people um, go out on boards and then they're lifted up by parachutes and they do tricks in the air and then land and continue surfing. It is an awesome thing to watch. There was a shark attack in Manzanita in December. Yep. <laughs> Stay on the shore. The ocean is the shark's house. (laughs) I have watched too much Shark Week in my life, I think. (laughs) You're actually more likely to be killed by a cow. What? Yep. Oh, Emily, you're so you're you are a font of knowledge. You have all the knowledge I want. (laughs) There are more cows in this world than sharks. (laughs) Well, methane, if you think about the effects of methane, uh, cows are killing all of us, actually. <laughs> it just turned into Friday night in here. <laughs> um, well, all right. Rich, what are you reading? Oh, um, oh, that's right. It wasn't. It wasn't the I'm sharks. Not, I'm not too far in either of these, but I have. I always have like one audiobook and one print book that I'm trying to work through, but I haven't gotten very far in either of them yet. So it, Obama's promised land Mm. um, is the one that I'm reading in print. And then um, I downloaded educated. I know I'm very late to that game. It's (laughs) fantastic. So yeah, I'm excited. So do you want to be found? Do you want people to find things online from yourselves? I imagine Ooligan Press perhaps. Oh yeah, definitely Ooligan. But I mean, really the report. I mean, I, I think that the report has something for many, many types of people. I mean, certainly all different stakeholders in the book publishing industry, but also media professionals um, in, you know, even app design, video games, um, certainly TV and, and, um, and film and YouTube videos. I mean, like that's another thing that we didn't really include in our surveys, but I know that like my children watch only YouTube. I mean, they don't, they will occasionally watch something on Netflix, but it's mostly, it's mostly YouTube. Um, okay. So the study, uh, Rachel, is there anywhere, um, is, is there anywhere that you want to send people to other than that? Um, Follow you on Twitter or Sure, yeah, Instagram. Twitter would be great. LinkedIn's great. I do have a website, but I don't really feel like you need to, you know, you, I guess you could link to, um, 
the publishing website or to our, we've both got bios, of course, like on PSU's English department website, you know, any of those would be fine. But um, yeah, I think especially letting people know that there's that short version that's five pages and then the long version, because some people might look at the long version, which is 75 pages and go, oh, I, you know, I don't want to yeah. dive into this, but five pages is manageable. The first whole page is just an infographic. So, you know, <laughs> get it, read it. <laughs> five pages you can read five pages I can read five pages y'all are readers just do it um, uh, you can find us uh, hybridpubscout.com on Facebook at hybridpubscout Twitter at hybridpubscout Instagram at hybridpubscoutpod and um, thanks for giving a rip about books